We've started at the ends of the book and we're going to work our way into the middle. How's that? Revelation. So far we've seen in chapter 1 that John is receiving the revelation from Jesus Christ out on the island of Patmos and Tuckey, which, which will soon take place. Meaning once it starts, it will be rapid. It's the culmination of all things. In Genesis 1 through 11, we have the planks, God, creation, man, marriage, woman, animals, angels, evil, redemption, civilization, nation. And then we see the culmination of it all, what God will do with all things in the book of Revelation. And it's given to John in symbolic language because there's persecution at the time. The Romans are killing the Christians for their faith. And God wants to encourage his people, giving them the events that will happen in the end times prior to the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. And so this letter is to be circulated amongst the churches in symbolic language with literal meaning so they can understand it and the Romans couldn't. So to understand this book, you've got to know Old Testament symbolism. And so we went through some of that with Daniel 2, 7 and 9. Chapter 1 is the introduction. Jesus is speaking. John is listening. We see a description of Christ dressed in a robe, hair white, eyes blazing like fire, meaning there's judgment. No one will escape. His sound is like, or his voice is like the sound of rushing water. Nothing will survive in its path. Judgment is coming. Now remember, Jesus has four offices. Prophet, priest, king, and judge. The first coming, we saw him function as a priest and a prophet. In the second coming, we'll see him come first as a judge. He'll come to judge. He will judge wicked men. He'll separate the sheep from the goats and establish his kingdom, and he will rule on the Davidic throne as king. Now, chapters 2 and 3, we're going to skip. Not that they're not important because all scriptures God breathes. Everything is useful for teaching. But what we'll do, because it kind of interrupts the flow of prophecy, we'll come back to it at the end. Chapters 2 and 3 is the addressing to the seven churches that he hits each one of them and says, love you, but you're messing up here. Love you, but you're messing up here. So let's go to chapter 4 and we'll pick it up. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, after this, after what? Well, him getting the addressing from Christ of the seven churches and addressing them. He says, After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Now, I like that. It's open to all who want to enter it. But how wide is a door? How many people can fit through a door? Most doors, just one. Jesus said, Broad is the road that leads, in, leads to destruction. Wide is the gate. Many are on it. Narrow the way, narrow the road, small is the gate that leads eternal life, few find it. John MacArthur puts it this way. It's like a turnstile of a bus station. Only one can get through, and you can't carry no baggage. And if you look at Jesus, if you remember the rich young ruler, he says, what must I do to have eternal life? Obey these commands, I've done it. He says, you lay everything you have on the altar. Says he turned around with his head bowed and walked off. Jesus hit him in his baggage. He was trying to get through that turnstile. Can't do it. Door is open. All who want to come, but it's narrow. And he sees this. 
And then he says, the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Remember, it says it describes Christ's voice like a trumpet because a trumpet in the Old Testament was used to bring the nation Israel to order. It was used to bring them into battle. It was used when they moved those two million people through the desert to Kadesh Barnea. And so it commands an action. So his voice is like a trumpet. Listen here in Texan. Okay? Listen up. And he says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once, John says, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was the throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And so now all of a sudden, whether in the body or in the Spirit, we don't know, this man is sucked up into the very throne room of God, taken up. Now, Ezekiel, I think I told you this, was transported during the exile from Babylon 500 miles to Jerusalem. He says literally God picked him up by his hair and brought him over there and let him see what the priests were doing, sacrificing to false gods and so forth, and it appalled Ezekiel. Paul in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 12, I think it is, says there was a man in the spirit or in the body, I don't know, but was caught up to the third level of heaven. Most people believe it's when he was in Lystra. He was stoned and dragged out to the city as dead, but then he popped back up on his feet, went back in the city, preached Jesus. I like that. That's guts ball evangelism. And anyway, he says... There was a man caught up to heaven. He's speaking to himself in the body and the spirit. I don't know. But he says, I was shown inexpressible things, things I wasn't disposed to tell a man. Third level of heaven is from the earth to the ozone, first level, where the birds fly. From the ozone to the end of the universe, second. And then it says, I think in Psalm 140, that God holds. No, actually it's Isaiah. Isaiah 40, I think. That God holds the entire universe in the breadth of his hand, from his little finger to his thumb where God resides, third level of heaven. This man is snatched up. He is caught up through this door, and boom, he's in the presence of the throne of God. And the spirit and the body, I don't know. Now, some commentators will take this as being the rapture. There's an event that's on the uh, eschatological calendar, and I believe it's the next event that will happen. To where it says in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4, we'll go over it in detail, sit tight, where God's going to snatch his people off the earth. Rapturo in the Latin means to snatch, to seize. And it says, caught up, and we will be with Jesus in the air. When this event happens is up for debate. I personally believe it will happen before this seven-year period will start to click off, the tribulation period. The seven-year tribulation period has not yet begun in this book of Revelation. Now remember, in Daniel, the prophecy. 490 years, Jesus Christ is coming to establish his kingdom. 483 years clicked off and he came the first time. They rejected him. The prophetic clock stopped. There's been about a 2,000-year period. And at some point, it's going to start up again and click off that last seven years. That's called Jacob's Trouble, Daniel's 70th week, book of Revelation talks about it. We are prior to the seven-year period in this book. 
I personally believe the rapture will happen before that because the Bible says God does not appoint us to suffer his wrath. Most commentators believe that this is a alluding to it. After this point, after chapter 3, you don't see the church mentioned until, Genesis, or until Revelation chapter 22, 21 and 22. Most people believe it's because we're taken out. He addresses them in 2 and 3, chronologically in this book, snatched up. We'll get to it. We'll go over the views. We'll go over exactly what the rapture is. I'll take you through all the biblical passages, the scriptures on it, okay? Right now, I'm going to go through this text. Chapter 4 and 5. Chapter 4, what you've got is a throne room. Chapter 5, you're going to have a throne sitter. Chapter 4 describes the throne room of God. Chapter 5 describes the throne sitter. So here's John. He's snatched up. He's in the throne room of God. Okay, verse 3, and it says, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and a rainbow resembling an emerald encircling the throne. Uh, a few things. It says that he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, or sardis. Those two stones were the first and the last stone that were on the breastplate of the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies. He had to get on this garb. He had to have a long tunic and an ephod and then a breastplate that went over it. And he had 12 stones. Each one was symbolic of one of the tribes of Israel, 12 tribes, 12 stones. And they had one on each shoulder, and each one had six names etched on it. And it was to show that when he went into the presence of God, that that nation was dear to his heart as it is dear to God's heart. And that he bore the burden of the sins of the nation upon his shoulders when he went in there. Those two stones are mentioned to show the totality of all 12 stones, the totality of Israel. And what he's saying here is God is going to rekindle his purposes for Israel. The tribulation period is the last call to the nation Israel. They rejected Jesus. The only way the kingdom can come in is if the subjects accept the king. And you will see Israel accept Christ as their Messiah and he can come. And so what God is doing here is rekindling it and that's the significance of these stones mentioned. Now, what do you think the symbolism is or the significance of the rainbow that encircles the throne? Where do you see a rainbow in the Old Testament mentioned? After the flood. That's God's covenant to Noah saying, I will never destroy the earth like that again. It's a weapon of destruction. It's a bow, but it's pointed upward and it's unarmed meaning that God will never point that weapon of destruction upon the planet again. Here we've got one that encircles the entire throne, and it's green. And I think it's a reminder that God and his covenants are permanent and true and eternal. That's the idea of a circle, kind of like your wedding ring. It's made out of gold that never tarnishes, and your love is to never tarnish, and it's circular to show that your love is supposed to be eternal, everlasting. And it's green, I think, because it's the earth, that now God is going to replenish the earth and restore it with the coming of the king. Okay? Let's keep going. Also, surrounding the throne, verse 4, were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. 
They were dressed in white, had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, who are these elders? Well, many different interpretations. Some say 12 are symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the other 12 are symbolic of the 12 apostles. One is Old Testament, one is New Testament church, one is Old Testament law, one is New Testament grace. Some say uh, there's a list of 24 priests in 1 Chronicle 24-7 that are established to encircle the tabernacle, the place where God meets with the people, and to be go-betweens between the people. I don't know. Regardless, there's 24 of them. They're symbolic either of Israel and the church, meaning all will be in heaven together, or priests, meaning that that's how people get to heaven through Christ as our high priest. Old Testament, it was the priest that sacrificed the animals and they looked forward to Christ and the priests were supposed to be symbolic of that. Don't know. All different kinds of things. But we won't concern ourselves too much with this. We'll just keep going. He says, They were dressed in white crowns of gold on their heads and from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Now from the throne come flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. Why do you think that's there? What do you think is coming from the throne? When you hear rumbling in the distance, Nate will tell you this, where is he? He was working on a water heater and a bolt of lightning struck a couple of miles and he thought he blew the house up. You hear rumbling in the distance and you see flashes. What do you know is coming? A storm? This is to show you that judgment's coming. A storm is coming. Like rushing water, his voice. It says, Before the throne were seven lamps that were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, which is the Holy Spirit. We saw this with the lampstand being symbolic of the church. Jesus in the midst of them. Seven spirits. The Holy Spirit that empowers the church. Also before the throne was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. Now, you see this in a couple of places. When Moses was on the mount getting the Ten Commandments, he brought up 70 elders, and they saw the floor of the throne room of heaven, and it was glass, a sea of glass. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel sees the throne of God coming in the distance like a storm. That judgment is coming, and it's going to come down on the nation Israel because of their disobedience. And underneath the sea of glass were four angels. And they had their wings spread out, and one wing overlapped the other. And they were like a box. One angel here, one here, one here, and one here. Each angel had four faces. Face of an ox, face of a lion, face of a uh, man, and the face, let me see, an eagle. Okay? Four faces on these angels. It was to show the character of God, that God is an ultimate servant, the ox. He is deity, the eagle, which flies high out of the sight of man. Not the highest flying bird. I was corrected on that. It's a duck that flies higher than a, an eagle. What's it called? A goose. I'm staying corrected again. It's a goose. But anyway, it shows deity You've got uh, the face of a man to show that he is the ultimate philosopher, the ultimate in wisdom. And then you've got a lion, which shows that he is the king of beasts. 
That's the character of God, and that's what these angels reflected with these four faces on them. And they, it says they had wheels underneath them that intersect, kind of like a gyroscope. You had one wheel going this way and one going this way, and it says it just moved. Wherever these angels went, that was the throne of God. That was the vision Ezekiel saw. So you had these angels in a sea of glass and then the throne of God. The reason I believe it says it's a sea of glass is because the Jewish people feared the sea, the unknown. It was dark. You couldn't see the bottom. They weren't supposed to eat anything off the bottom. But now there's no mystery. It's clear. There's no fear to those who believe. But to those who don't, judgments are coming. Now watch this. Uh, in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and I believe that these are described in Ezekiel. We had time, we'd go back, but you just go ahead and read it, and you'll be able to understand it. And they were covered with eyes front and back, again showing the character of God that he is omniscient, that no one escapes the eyesight of God, that everything is seen, nothing is hidden from God's sight, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, Everything is uncovered and laid bare before whom we must give an account. Verse 7, The first living creature was like that of a lion. The second was like that of an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Now there are the four faces. Now again, go back to Ezekiel. Each angel had one of these faces. He's saying each one looked like that. He might just be describing each one had that face. In Ezekiel, there's four angels. Verse 8, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. Even under his wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That word is hagiads, which means to cut away, to be separate, a cut above, that he is thrice holy. In case you missed it the first time, he's holy. In case you missed it the second time, he's holy. If you ain't sure then, he's holy three times over. He is set apart, was, is, and will come. And he is also the Lord God Almighty, that's El Shaddai, bigger than any mountain, bigger than anything on the face of the planet. Then it says, who was, and is, and is to come. Who was is Old Testament prophecy. Who is is New Testament grace, and is to come is revelation, this book, and the millennium, the eternal kingdom. Now it says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, and this is where we get the idea of when we get our crown when we get to heaven, when Jesus wraps his arms around us and says, good and faithful servant, and gives us our reward, we simply lay it at the feet of Jesus because that's all we have. That's where this idea comes from. They lay their crowns, they lay their rewards at the feet of Jesus and says, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. Now, why is he worthy? Because he's the author of life. Why is he worthy? Because by the breath of his mouth, the heavens were made. By his voice, the starry hosts were set in place. He says, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Paul says in Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. That he is worthy of glory and honor, and he is worthy to be called holy, 
because he created time, space, matter. He is the author of all things, and we are made in his image. Now, chapter 5. Let's take a look at the throne sitter and what he has. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and the right hand is the hand of authority, hand of power, because remember the kings would fight or the king would be in battle and his right-hand man or his bodyguard, if you will, would stand on the king's right side because he would protect him with his shield and fight off the enemy with his right hand with his sword. The Benjamins, the Benjamites were studs in the Bible because they were ambidextrous. All right? In Old Testament, what they'd do is they'd gouge out, they'd gouge out the right eye of the warrior so he couldn't fight any longer. He'd be rendered useless because he'd have a shield in his left hand and he'd fight with his right and he'd be blindsided here. He'd just come up so he's no good. So the Benjamites fixed that. They could fight with either hand. Okay? Because soldiers were still good workers. They didn't want to kill them. Just kind of incapacitate them. Anyway, power, right hand, position of authority. And in it he has a scroll and it has writing on both sides and it's sealed with seven seals. Now, this is important. It has writing on both sides. And we're going to see later on that this is the judgment of God. And it's complete. And it's full. And it can't be added to or you can't take away. In the Old Testament, what they would do, a king, let's say that he wanted to send a message. Let's say I wanted to send a message to Bob. I'd write it down on some parchment and I'd roll it up like so. And then I'd take some wax and I would melt it on the edge, probably right here in the middle. And then I'd take my signet ring and I'd press it in and then I'd give it to a messenger. And he would take this message to Bob. If that wax seal was broken, off came his head. It was that simple. That seal showed authenticity and it guaranteed that this thing was going to go to its destination. This scroll has writing on both sides and it has seven seals on it. It shows it's God's it's authentic, and it will get to its destination as promised. Now, the question is, what do you think that this is, this scroll that's in the right hand of the Father? I'll tell you what it is. I'm glad you asked. It is the title deed to the kingdom of earth. God created it. He owns it. But man's not running it like he's supposed to. When God put Adam and Eve on the planet, he said, you raha in the Hebrew. You rule over it. You bring it under submission. You rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the animal kingdom, the winds, the waves, everything. But we don't see that right now. Creation kills man. Man is underneath creation instead of ruling over it. How come? God still owns it. We see it right here. But who's running the show? Well, God's running it. He's sovereign. But who's the ruler of the air? Who's the God of this world? Satan. Because Adam gave him rulership. The rulers, the principalities, the authorities in the dark world. He's the prince of the air. The God of this world, the Bible says. But aren't you glad God still owns it? And he's got the title deed to the kingdom of earth in his right hand, the hand of power. And it's sealed with seven seals. Now what you're going to see is someone come up and take this scroll. And not just anybody can take the scroll because whoever takes the scroll is going to take control over the planet. Now, who do you think the only one worthy enough is to take the scroll? 
I'll show you. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. Take note. You can look at the bumper stickers all you want that say pray for peace. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for world unity. Pray for no world, no wars. That's a great deal. But it ain't going to happen till when? Till Jesus Christ comes. And there's nobody on the earth or under the earth or above the earth that's going to be able to do it. There's only one man. Verse 4, I wept and wept, John says, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who is that? The root of David. Who is that? Who has triumphed? Who is that? He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. And he says, I saw a lamb that was looking as if he had been slain standing in the center of the throne. I like it. The lion of the tribe of Judah is none other than Jesus Christ. It was prophesied in Genesis 49 that someone would come from Judah, one who the scepter would not depart. He is the root of David. That in 2 Samuel 7:16, God promised David, one of his descendants, would sit upon the throne forever. He has triumphed. How? Because he was killed he was buried and he raised from the dead. And Jesus said, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And you see the lamb who is standing. He's not laying down. And where is he? He's in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he lives forever, it says in Hebrews, to intercede for us. Aren't you glad? He has risen from the dead, the angel said. He's not here. And it says that he had seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. Now, does Jesus Christ have seven horns? No. This is symbolic to show that he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Again, a horn is power. That was the animal's power. Strength of virility. How about seven eyes? Does Jesus have seven eyes? No. We saw Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, walk the planet for 40 days, talk with the disciples, talk with the, road, the, the men on the road to Emmaus, there were no seven eyes or horns sticking out of his head. Shows that he is what? He is omniscient. He knows all things. He's all-knowing. Eyes are knowledge, wisdom. And then also seven spirits, which is the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, verse 7, He came, took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men from God, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked. And here before me, or heard before me, voices of angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne, the living creatures, and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, and strength. 
and honor, glory, and praise. Verse 13, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and forever. Can you imagine what this sounds like, this cacophony of sound of thousands upon thousands of angels singing? I hope a lot better than Mr. Todd Wortham this morning. I love the brother, but whew. All right? This has got to be a choir, okay? This will blow away the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Now, a couple of interesting things, and I'll end here. Jesus Christ takes the scroll. He takes back the title deed to the kingdom of earth, and he is going to rule it. That was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that he will crush the serpent's head. He will do away with evil. In the New Testament, he disarmed the rulers and the principalities and the authorities of death over human beings that we can be born again and that God will eventually deal with evil through his son Christ completely and forever. He takes it, and there's seven seals. Now, what we're going to see in chapter 6 is Jesus starts to open this scroll. And when it opens, there's judgments that come down upon the earth. Because Jesus Christ now must take his kingdom, but his kingdom is filthy. It must be purged of evil. And for seven years, you will see judgments come down upon the earth. And it's to call men to repentance. It's to purge the earth of evil and to prepare the coming of the Son of Man to take rightful rulership over the planet. Father owns it. Jesus takes the scroll. And in chapter 6, he'll start to pop the seals. And John will see him pop the seal. And with each seal that's popped, he's going to see a judgment that comes down upon the earth. The first four are the first four horsemen of the apocalypse. We'll get to it. But what I want you to see that's real neat is once he takes the scroll, verse 9, the heavens break out in song. First, it starts at the throne. The elders start to sing with harps. Then thousands upon thousands of angels start to sing. And in verse 13, remember, everything on earth, under the earth, and in all the heavens, glorious praise that the earth and the universe will be redeemed. Romans chapter 8 says that the earth groans and creaks waiting to be redeemed because it's under a curse. All things are cursed. With the coming of Christ, the curse will be lifted. Now what's neat about this? When's the last time prior to this we saw angels singing? If you look up in verse 8, it says the angels are flying around, but they say in a loud voice, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Well, you'll say, they sang, of course, at the announcement of the birth of Christ when the angels appeared to the shepherds. No, they didn't. You look back and read it. It says they said, or they'll say in a loud voice. <clears throat> the only place that you see angels singing prior to this says in Job 38, verse 7, when the foundations of the earth were laid, the morning glories, which are angels, sang. After the fall, you don't see angels singing any longer because the earth and all that is in it is under a curse. Now the curse will be lifted. Now all the angels are singing in glorious joy because Christ is coming and the curse will be lifted and man will be redeemed and put in his rightful position, ruling over the planet with one addendum, Christ ruling 
and us ruling with him as heirs and co-heirs to the kingdom. If that don't make you shout, then you better check your pulse because you're dead where you sit. Isn't that good? So next week we'll look at chapter 6. We'll look at the judgments. Let's pray. We got food? We got food, Bob? Okay. We'll bless the food. Lord, thank you for the sweet time. Again, Genesis, Revelation. All Scripture useful for us to teach us, to rebuke us where need be, and to encourage and strengthen our hearts that you are coming. The theme of the book. Lord, we wait in great anticipation, but while we do, you give us strength and you give us wisdom and opportunities to share the truth to all around us. Let us talk the talk, walk the walk, and be living examples. You strengthen this church up, Lord. This is our purpose. This is our goal. Bind us together. Keep division, divisiveness out of here. Put your hedge of protection. Thank you for this place that we can meet, for the food, and bless the hands that protected or provided it. We thank you for all this for Christ's sake. Amen.